This is Heidi Matthews On Demand, the podcast that is R-rated, but with plausible deniability. HMOD is a barely legal podcast about sex, culture, politics, and legal regulation, hosted by me, Osgood Hall Law School professor Heidi Matthews, and my new American husband, David Slavic. We've been on a summer travel and writing hiatus for the last several weeks, but are back in the saddle now. In this episode, we chat with Ben Burgess about his new book, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, just out with zero books. Ben is a lecturer in philosophy at Georgia State University Perimeter College, where he teaches critical theory, intro to philosophy, and ethics. Ben is a unique sort of academic. He contributes regularly to several political podcasts and YouTube channels, including The Michael Brooks Show, Zero Books, and The Surfs. In the age of Twitter hot takes and general online vitriol, understanding how to make and sell a good argument is a rare and much-needed skill. Ben takes this as a challenge because, I think, he wants to bridge any gap, real or perceived, between his philosophy classroom and the realm of public discourse. David likes to call him the people's philosopher, and I think Ben would be happy with that description. Here is our interview with Dr. Ben Burgess. So thanks, Ben Burgess, for being here. We're super happy to have you, obviously. You're a real uh, stalwart participant in left intellectual discussions. Um, and so we're going to talk to you today specifically about your brand new book, uh, Out With Zero Books, called Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. And, and there's just so much material here. Um, I really enjoyed uh, reading it. I have to admit, I'm not 100% finished yet, but I did get through a good chunk. It's a really um, fun and easy, not in the sense of easy intellectually, but easy on the sort of, on the, on the eyes and on the, on the brain in the sense it's a lot of fun. So I, we, I think Dave and I would both recommend the book to, um, to those of you out there who, who uh, are interested in the topics. So I've got a bunch of notes. I mean, the first real uh, question would be why this book now? Mm-hmm. And also since you're an academic like myself, we're um, keenly, aware of the place that we hold in the, you know, neoliberal capitalist academic <laughs> enterprise. And so what's interesting about this book is that it was written for, I mean, I want you to tell me about the audience, but I'm going to assume sure. to put to you that it was actually written for um, a wide uh, audience of informed, but not necessarily academic readers. And I should say to people, you know, that doesn't necessarily serve to, to publish with a place like zero doesn't necessarily serve uh, the academic interests of, of those. Mm-hmm. Who it. So kudos for taking that leap as well. If you could start off telling us about why now and and why uh, why this this press? Sure. Um, so, actually, the the genesis of the book uh, came from probably partially because I was writing a different book, um, one that uh, will um, the gears have been grinding much more slowly on, but might come out next year, uh, which is a much more specialized book. I expect like 12 people in the world to read that one. Uh, but I was, I think I was posting about it all the time, you know, on social media while I was writing it. And uh, Doug Lane, who's the editor of Zero Books, uh, is somebody I, I've known for, for a very long time, you know, before he had that position. Uh, and, um, and so the sort of roundabout way 
that the book came out is because I think I was constantly talking about, oh, I'm you know writing this book about logic, meaning the the academic book, uh, and then so uh, so and then uh, Doug was organizing this conference uh, about uh, about Jordan Peterson, the uh, conference in lieu of a debate, you know, since uh, Peterson had uh, had canceled. Um, had been going to go on uh, the Zero Books podcast, and then he got cold feet, uh, and then went on Joe Rogan shortly afterwards, uh, and, and said that um, uh, and said that Marxists weren't interested in debating him. Uh, so just uh, just kind of have some fun with that. He organized this conference in lieu of debate, and I submitted something to that. And Doug said, "Actually, I was um, you know hoping you might want to write a book for us, right, about uh, logic and politics." And it kind of took me a little while to warm up to the idea because I was thinking, oh, what would that be, right? You know, like I had, uh, and but then like the more the more I kind of thought about it, um, the more it did seem like uh, there was need there, right? So the the sort of audience I have in mind is people who um, who might uh, who might listen to like some of the same leftist podcasts that I do who might have even gone so far as to join the Democratic Socialists of America, but, uh, but who certainly don't have any kind of background in this stuff. And so it's, it's an attempt to kind of do a few things at, at the same time and sort of do a, both be a polemic uh, about why people who share that kind of political project should, should be more concerned about getting the arguments right and also a kind of you know, I mean, it's a short book, but like in a rudimentary way, that would be like uh, something that would function as a, as almost like a textbook about how to do so. And a lot of a lot of what inspired that was was kind of noticing uh, recently, you know, in the last couple of years, especially this kind of dynamic uh, where there are some people on the right who constantly talk about logic and invoke the rhetoric of logic in a really superficial way. And then people who do share the political commitments that I care about, who kind of react to, like maybe overreact to that by kind of rolling their eyes whenever the subject comes up, because uh, they sort of perceive, like especially if you talk about like logical fallacies, you know, this is like a a longstanding joke on Chapo Trap House, you know, this is sort of perceived as like like kind of this arbitrary set of conventions for for debating people, like kind of a yellow card you can give out in a debate. Uh, and people, I think, have are sort of exasperated by that. You know, they kind of have this reaction, like, "Oh, well, you know, these, pe- <laughs> you know, a lot of these people, you know, we're reacting to on the right. You know, they're really bad people. We don't want to be like nice to them. And if this is like a, you know, if this is a sort of conventions, you know, if this is like the Marquis of Queensbury rules for, you know, for debate or something like that, then then why bother, right? So um, and. And so that's what the that's what the book is sort of trying to push back against and say no 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 like this actually is really important for all kinds of reasons we can get into to try to get the arguments right and these are tools that will help you do that. So one question I'm going to ask you later but I want to just make yeah. sure you footnote it is I'm going to ask you have we done that to ourselves where we we actually are doing it to ourselves now and that's going to we're going to put that on hold but I know that Heidi has a really important question about this because she as a as a you know, as a person trained in law is often running into these same problems because people don't want to have discussions on the area of law. So I'm going to kick it to Heidi on that question. Okay. 
Thank you, David. <laughs> so yeah, no, I think we share uh, a lot of the same frustrations uh, with everything that you just laid out, right? So as I have an undergrad in philosophy, and then of course, uh, now teach law, um, and, and law is, you know, highly indebted to the field of logic, sort of as a general proposition, because all we do is argument, we're concerned with arguments that are uh, I mean, on a, you know, it's a very, very low bar, right, to ask right. for a logic, an argument to be like, to satisfy the basic requirements of logic. And then there are all these higher order questions, right, about um, persuasiveness, about strategy, about tactics, about um, venue, uh, you know, audience, all of those things. And I, what I really appreciated about your book was that it set out quite clearly, you know, all this stuff about having um, a logically valued argument is really just the first question. And I think what you've just kind of gestured to is the way in which people on the right are often using it as the beginning and the end, right? So the idea that something, uh, that an assertion would be a mere assertion as opposed to an argument is used to, to shut down conversation rather than to generate communication. And so if you could just talk a little bit about how and why you think logic, I mean, or even just kind of basic yeah. argumentation has become a dirty word on the left, right? Yeah. And, and how you see that as a problem, or if you do. Yeah, well, I, I certainly do. Uh, and I think that there are probably a lot of reasons, which is unfortunate, because, you know, if if there were, like, fewer causes, it would probably be easier to solve. But uh, certainly, certainly one of them uh, has to do with the kind of weaponization of the rhetoric of logic on the right, and, um which is something that really goes back to people like uh, Ayn Rand, you know, but I think has, has really kind of gained steam more recently. And so that's definitely, that's definitely part of it. Uh, and part of it has to do with this issue about like maybe the relationship between a lot, between like reasoning, trying to make good arguments and, and emotions or, you know, caring about certain political goals maybe uh, because there's this uh, misperception, you know, a lot of people get mad at me about this part, but I, I, I got to lay some of the blame on Star Trek. There's a, uh, that there's some sort of conflict between, uh, between logic and emotion, right? Certainly the way that, you know, yes, I understand that, you know, the Vulcans like do actually experience some emotions, but you know, the way that it's talked about suggests that there's some sort of. Uh, I, I wouldn't know anything about that, Ben. Yes. But on the other hand, I'm I'm agreeing with you and nodding furiously. I, I as, as a, so I, I didn't realize I was a Star Trek fan for a long time. Yeah. I watched some of the old stuff and I thought, this is the most groundbreaking show that ever existed. And I, I always thought of myself as a Star Wars guy. Yeah. And you know, that that you know, never the twain shall meet. I mean if uh, you're Star Wars and, and and Star Trek. And I realized over time that I was like, actually this is post capitalist. This is, uh, you know, a society that's working in unison for each other. It's multiracial. It's, you know, it's the most intersexual democracy we've ever seen. And I was like, that's a lot better than this Jedi nonsense, which is just like, you know, the Sandinistas versus the American Empire. Yeah. So uh, because this is just audio, I think it's important that somebody probably talk about like how hard Heidi was rolling her eyes during the, uh, uh, that explanation. But uh, but no, I mean, look, I I I enjoy the show. I, I I agree with you about its many virtues. But there's this certain suggestion there that there's this tension, at least, between uh, logic and emotion. You know, they talk about you know Vulcans being very logical and thus being very unemotional, right? So this is fairly important point because, of course, now I mean, look, there can be tension between those 
in like a sort of trivial sense that like if you're too mad to think straight, right, you know, you're not going to make good arguments. But in a larger sense, there really isn't. And this is an important point because I think the widespread perception that there is is one of the sources of the problem. Because if you're told, you know, if you're um, told in the context of uh, political arguments that might often have to do with things like, um, you know, putting immigrant children in concentration camps that, uh, oh, no, 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 you know, you're being too emotional, then I think it's a, it's a natural response to kind of, you know, suspect that rightly the people who are saying that of, you know, being monsters, they're trying to, you know, like they want you to like turn off your entirely appropriate human reaction to that, which is why I think that as far as at least that aspect of this resistance to, to logic talk, on the left, it's important to kind of to really clarify that no, these two things are not at all in conflict, right? You know, you could you could be passionately committed to a certain set of political goals, but also like think carefully and rigorously about how best to implement them. So, you know, that's interesting you say that. So, I, I'm a student of Marshall Gans. Marshall Gans is a uh, is a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. He helped organize the um, the uh, United Fruit and Commercial Workers uh, strikes, and he was involved in the, of course, the Montgomery bus boycott and, and a lot of the civil rights movement. One of the things that we always learn as Gansians, and I, I don't think they use that term, but I, I studied under the New Organizing Institute, which is then rolled into the Wellstone Institute, which everyone knows, Paul Wellstone, my political hero. Um, and one of the things that we always talk about is the heart and the head. And how yeah. do you make the heart and the head come together in a, in a logical argument? Mm-hmm. And we do that through the personal. What ways do you think that the left could do that more? So I think that one thing that would be that would be really helpful for a lot of people, and this is going to sound like really dry and pedantic, but I think I think it is going to speak to your question, is just learning to separate uh, conclusions from the arguments for them. That, in other words, that like um, you can have um, you can think that something is a terrible argument for something, but still, but still think the conclusion's right and that we can make better arguments for it, right? So, uh, so for example, uh, one, uh, one case that I talk about in the book uh, has to do uh, with, um, with rights and dignity and equality for trans people, you know, which, which is something that I think any decent left project, you know, would, would care about, right? Would have as one of its goals. Um, and but I think that it's uh, often argued for in really bad ways, and which is really counterproductive, right? You know, which is uh, that people will uh, will try to uh, argue for like recognition for you know gender identity, uh, you know that uh, that you know that diverge from you know from birth sex by through like skepticism about biological sex as a category. Right, you know, by saying, "Oh no, no, no," there's there's really no distinction, right? You know, between these, and they'll do that by pointing to the existence of unusual chromosomal combinations or unusual combinations of secondary sex characteristics. You're about to get canceled, I think. <laughs> uh, was, I've actually ple- been pleasantly surprised since the book came out that nobody has canceled before this, but now is maybe the time, right? <laughs> yeah. Podcast canceled. I, I think I think I you know so, so, yeah, you actually she, talk about contrapoints in the book, and I yeah. think that I think that she might agree with you actually. Yeah, I think she actually does. I, I'm um, so um, 
I believe that she is actually on record as agreeing with this point, you know, right, that they have that, uh, which is not surprising because uh, she's a philosophy grad school dropout, you know, and, and it, it, uh, it shows, right? I mean, like, like even when she's like having a lot of fun with the things she's talking about in her videos and she's, you know, and she's obviously, you know, mocking things that deserve mockery and, you know, and, and do it in a really fun way. But like, she is, she is also like, there's always like a point where it's like, where she'll like actually like quote long passages and like really ruthlessly can deconstruct the arguments. And I think she has a, she has a real flair for that. Uh, but yeah, so I think that the problem is that um, if you think about like the, uh, the sororities paradox, which is the, um, uh, the one which is paradox going back to ancient Greece and the original version is about how like how many stones it takes to make a pile or like it might be a little clearer if you think about uh, like hair on a head, right? Start with somebody who's completely bald and like add a hair, add a hair, add a hair, add a hair until you get to like Fabio, right? So then like somewhere well before the Fabio stage, we would say the person is not bald, right? But exactly how many hairs have to be on their head for them to count as not bald is vague. And whatever, like, there are some complicated philosophical issues about how to think about borderline applications of vague terms. But, um, but one thing I think just about everybody who's thought about this agrees on is that you can't go from the existence of ambiguous borderline cases to saying that the distinction doesn't exist or that there aren't clear cases on both sides. Right? That's the continuum fallacy. This is why I said, like, I think that this is, uh, I think this is a problem that, like, one thing that would really help is just that very simple trick of remembering that there's a distinction between a conclusion and the argument for the conclusion. Because if to the extent that people do start to, you know, have cancellation in their eyes, you know, when they hear this, uh, it's because they, it's because they are very rightly attached to the conclusion that, you know, that, that we should, um, you know, use people's, you know, preferred pronouns and, you know, uh, let them, you know, use the bathrooms that match their gender identity and expression and all the rest of those sorts of things that go into basic human decency on this issue. But when they hear you challenging one of the sort of usual arguments for that conclusion, they think that you're going to challenge the conclusion itself. And that really doesn't follow, right? You can, you can concede that biological sex is a thing, but also say that there are it's possible to have a version of, you know, gender identity or expression that doesn't match that. You touched on, or actually directly referenced this, this uh, idea of identity politics, right? Mm -hmm. So identity politics, I mean, it, tell me if you agree with me on this, but it's, sure. it's a form of argumentation, right? Mm -hmm. um, and of course can be done, you know, more or less well, but it's a sort, it's a sort of argumentation and, and it's, I don't know if I want to say much more than that because I don't want to. I don't want to prejudice what the sort of discussion you might want to have about that. But um, but we do find ourselves at this. This that's so lawyery. Um, yeah, I mean, we do find ourselves at this kind of a uh, of a discursive, for lack of a better word, impasse. Right, where where it's not okay to be skeptical of the way in which certain sorts of identity politics arguments are marshaled in favor of conclusions that, as you said, we might probably can all agree on the left are actually good things. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So uh, I think, 
Identity politics is one of those phrases that means a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts, but certainly one thing that it means, what I think it sounds like you're talking about is what uh, think of sometimes as like standpoint epistemology. Like you can, uh, the idea that uh, people due to facts about their uh, identity, people have like maybe special insight that should be deferred to by everybody else, right? You know, that like, that, you know, if somebody can start, can start their sentence with as a, right? You know, then that gives some sort of weight to what comes afterwards. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, because I don't want to go too, you know, too far in the direction of, you know, callous brochalist dismissal of all this, you know, because I think there are legitimate cases for this, right? You know, like, I think that it's obviously we don't want to completely dismiss the idea that some people have experienced things that other people haven't. And that 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 actually could give them insights that other people lack, right? You know that that's uh, that this is something you know this is something that happens that you know that if uh, that like if I you know if you have been forced to think about something a lot because it's come up a lot in your life and I haven't then you know then then it could be that uh, that there's there's actually stuff I haven't thought of and that's like a reasonable thing to take into consideration, but. Um, they, it is, I think, a serious problem that, uh, very often people on the left, um, give too much, uh, too much weight to that in contexts uh, where they probably shouldn't. Uh, and one thing that I think should be a wake up call in that regard is that I'm increasingly seeing, uh, recently signs that people on, uh, people on the wrong side uh, of some important issues have kind of learned this trick, right? So two examples that come to mind are the recent uh, attempted coup uh, in Venezuela, uh, where they very oftentimes, if you criticize them, they said, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't think that the United States should be trying to, you know, decide, you know, who runs Venezuela, uh, you know, and, and, and I think that these, you know, these right-wing, you know, uh, Force of Venezuela, really bad news, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You'd be told, you know, well, 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 talk to a Venezuelan, right? You know, they like, you know, like they would sort of like uh, Venezuelan Americans who supported the right wing at home um, sort of picked up this rhetorical trick that, you know, as a Venezuelan, right? You know, uh, and another example that comes to mind is uh, some discussions uh, of uh, Palestine where, uh, where there are there are people who have um, are right wing Zionists, or even if they're not generally very right wing, they they have some right wing views about that, and they and who they'll sort of and they'll sort of pick up this selective uh, standpoint epistemology there and and kind of say, well, you know, as a Jew, I think, right, you know, or that, or they'll say things like, you know, like if you try to say, no, 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 no there's a difference between anti-Semitism and, you know, and, and, uh, and objecting to, to this nation state and, you know, the things that it's doing is to say, no, 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 Jews should be allowed to define anti-Semitism, right, which is a super standpoint epistemology kind of thing to say. And, uh, and I think that these, you know, I mean, you can just sort of, there are ways of trying to like hold on to, um, to sort of letting people do this in all the cases you like and excluded in the cases that you don't like. And sort of, yeah. saying, no, no, I'm talking about like, I'm talking about oppressed people, not oppressors, et cetera. But I think that's, that gets a little thin, right? You know, yeah. I think that, 
I think that like really what this should be is a wake up call that in general, this is something that at least as a matter of degree, we should be moving away from. So I, I think of two really good examples. Um, one is a positive example sort of for our, for our way of thinking about the left and that's Eli Valley. You know, and he's often called a fake Jew. He, the things that are hurled at him by people who are not even Jewish are, are really repugnant. And then the other example, and it goes right to your point about Venezuela, is Johanna Hausman. Johanna Hausman was, did the, the New York Times video. Father is actually um, involved in the IMF and the, uh, you know, uh, the OAS, and it is really running essentially the coup from the United States. Johanna was a happy hour buddy of mine in D.C., <laughs> um, I met her a few times. Uh, she's in New York now, but uh, I remember meeting her and they're like, everyone said, you know, she's really important. And I was like, this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. And, you know, you just meet people in DC and, you know, you run into everybody's like a dictator's daughter or something. You know, I remember meeting her and when I saw her there, I was like, Joanna? Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? She's the spokesperson for Venezuela. And uh, you really get a really different sense of that when you see these people up front. And then you see her trotted out as like i mean she grew up in like california or something like i don't i mean honestly i think she has as much connection to venezuela as i do and that's just because i like a rapist well and actually that was a particularly fun example because after this kind of came out that like and the she and the new york times were widely criticized because they were because this uh giant conflict of interest you know was never you know revealed um then uh her dad uh uh, had like tweeted this sort of like self-righteous like faux feminist defense you know that was like oh so she can't possibly be thinking it for herself it must be some male family member you know that's responding you know that's responsible for it as if this were what people were getting upset about and as if it would have been any different if you know it had been his son I want to kick you. I, you actually are a former writer of Quillette magazine. You wrote one article there, and I'm not. Yeah. I'm actually not going. One, to, one and a half, but yeah, one and a half. But uh, uh, I'm actually I, not I going to with Matt you McManus, I, yeah. I am, uh, and the part of the left that believes that you should reach out. But uh, there's, you know, which makes me canceled on this day on Twitter. But mm-hmm. um, what I will say is that I think that Quillette has made a brand out of logic and reason. They are the uh-huh. logic and reason household. Uh, we in our in our dealings in Canada and especially with the issue of yeah. the, uh, indigenous genocide have dealt very well, uh, very much with the um, Jonathan Kay, some of the writers there. Andy No was very much in the moves. I'm really interested to see what you have to say about Colette. Not, and you don't have to like snitch on them. That's not what I'm expecting. But what I'm, I'm interested to see about the branding around logic and reason. Mm. Sure. Um, if uh, you know, I suppose it's a strategy question, right? Yeah. Like, so what, so I, so, so answer David's question, but then if we could kind of go into like, okay, that it seems to, to this, this focus on for all sorts of reasons that may or may not have to do with some kind of thing we might think of as a patriarchy, you know, privilege, logic and reason, whatever above other modes of argumentation or, or so what did in your mind, right. And I'm not mm-hmm. asking, cause I think you should have a prescription. I hate it when people say to me, well, what's your better idea? And I'm like, well, I just do critique. Like I'm not interested <laughs> in, you know, writing a new constitution uh-huh. or a new law, but, but, but that being said from a sort of strategic point, if you could muse about like what the fuck the left is supposed to, and again, understanding that the left is a, whatever it is, um, what we might do in response to something mm. like Quillette as one example of a publication, I think David's quite right, has done really mm. um, like successful 
branding around a mode of argumentation that for rightly or wrongly has success? So one of the reasons that I did in the first place, so yeah, I have uh, two articles in Colette, one solo and one is co-written with, um, uh, with Matt McManus, uh, who's a uh, um, very interesting left-wing Canadian writer. Uh, and uh, part of the reason that I did that uh, was, was kind of, um, was kind of uh, ideological because like I, I actually like think that like it's uh, it's really important to make left-wing arguments in right-wing spaces you know where uh, people who because uh, Quillette readers you know uh, aren't gonna like uh, read these articles in Jacobin if you don't write them in Quillette. And I, should uh, say I couldn't agree more. I've been writing on Me Too since its inception um, as you might know and the mm-hmm. The first piece I wrote, no one would go near it. The only place it would go near it was the Toronto Sun, and I was very happy to write an overtly left-wing piece there. So, so I'm on board. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I mean, really, like a more c- consequential example might even be like uh, that. Um, really, that I was thinking a lot about at the time, and that like really bothered me was um, uh, that there were quite a few people uh, who were criticizing. Um, Bernie Sanders for doing a, a a town hall on Fox News, which struck me as insane because you know of course everything people were saying about Fox and they're criticizing this was right, but um, but it's also uh, the most popular cable network in the country that he was running for president of, right? You know, so the idea that we should just kind of abandon this whole audience. Um, struck me as, as ludicrously counterproductive. Um, and, uh, and then part of it was just uh, contrariness because like, uh, cause that first article um, was written by Matt and, you know, and I was seeing people give him shit online for writing there. I was like, yeah, you know, fuck you. I'll, I'll go do this too. Right. That's, uh, but you know, I think that Quillette, um, you know, it's, I think a lot of, I think an important thing to, to get, and, you know, I, I could probably speak relatively freely about this because, you know, because, because I don't, I don't know, um, based on the one time that I tried since then, you know, I'm, I'm, I might, I might've used up my, uh, you know, I might've used up my, uh, like ability to, to sneak, you know, articles into Quillette, but, uh, um, but I did, uh, but they've got, I think that part of their branding is that people who read it and people who write for it, it's very important to them that they think of themselves as being super reasonable and super driven by empirical evidence and so on and so forth, Uh, which isn't necessarily um, that, you know, which, which doesn't necessarily track with, you know, with uh, what they, they do. Right. You know, that like, in other words, like, you know, that like, just because that's an important part of somebody's self-conception, you know, doesn't mean that that's really reflected in in how one might they... say their identity. Yes, yes, one might say that. Uh, yeah, like that hilarious moment in the uh, in uh, the Sam Harris Ezra Klein debate about race and IQ uh, when um, when he says when Klein says, "Well, I think you're very likely to identify with people who you see as the victims of mobs and whatever, because you know that's kind of your tribe that you identify with." And uh, Harris uh, says, "No, no, 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 it has nothing to do with identity. That's just my experience." 
No, that's that's really interesting because I, I there's a recent case that actually really um, brought Colette and under the fire of the left. Yeah, and that and, and I'm not talking about the Andy No Milkshake um, situation, which is I we would need to do a whole show on that. To be yeah. honest, I mean, uh, sure. do you know what I'm talking about? The uh, it was the Antifa um, connection grid. It was uh, one of those. It was it was like Charlie Day esque sort of connections of people who follow who. And people yeah. who report on what, and it involved Jared Holt, who, I, who does a lot of good work. It involved um, Summers, uh, who does a lot of good work, and uh, you know these people who track sort of these hate groups, Proud Boys, etc. The Antifa people are doing really good work on a lot of different issues. Their members have, have done some uh, uh, more egregious work, with, as far as reference to us. But uh, <laughs> but uh, that was been, been really interesting, um, and. I think that sort of focus on like graphical technologies and sort of data journalism, Mm -hmm. I think the left's like focus or the center left's focus on data journalism has actually left the left in a weaker space in a lot of ways because it allows the rights to do things that look like data journalism, you know, which is almost an argument in itself. It's like a sub argument because you're like data doesn't, you know, data is not lying. Right. How do you feel about that? And, and sort of how do you play that into the Colette model? Absolutely. So this is, um, I'm reminded of there used to be a, uh, a talk show on ESPN called uh, Numbers Never Lie. And, uh, and that, and which drove me crazy. Like I, I like the hosts, you know, they had like nice pattern and everything. They did another show later called His and Hers. I thought it was much better, but like the, uh, but n- numbers never lie. The format was that the two hosts would uh, would like argue for a few minutes about some sports topic, and then they would like trot out some statistic that allegedly settled the argument. You know, be like, "Oh, this one goes to Jamel, right?" You know, that's so. Uh, and it always drove me crazy because, of course, uh, if numbers never lie means you can't say mis, you know, you can't present real statistics in misleading ways, then you know, of course you can, right? What are you talking about, right? That's uh, and this is also, I think, uh, an important point when it comes to the political versions of it, because that center-left preference for data-driven journalists often is often used in to sort of disguise the um, ideological motivations, right? Or sort of deny that there are ideological motivations, right? We're just doing like pure empiricism here. It has nothing to do with any sort of moral or political uh, values or goals, which, you know, I think it's kind of impossible, right? You know, that the, uh, and uh, certainly once again, like the Quillette people, you know, uh, it might be, you know, it might be Nate Silver's self-conception, but it certainly, you know, it, it certainly doesn't track uh, what he actually does in practice, right? That, um, and, and this is, and this is important too, because, um, you know, I, I think that, um this idea that you're, you know, especially where it gets dangerous is when you're suggesting that you're reaching political conclusions purely on the basis of data, uh, because that's actually um, like, you know, Heidi said at the beginning, right? It's a, you know, it's a relatively low bar, but it is an important bar, right? You know, that like even having like a valid argument. Uh, you literally can't have a valid argument for a moral or political conclusion, a normative conclusion, you know, to be fancy about it, that doesn't have at least one normative premise, right? You know, like that it just literally does not follow, right, from purely um, 
from purely factual premises. And sometimes in some contexts, the, uh, the normative premises might just kind of go without saying, you know, like I, I don't have to say, um, you know, when I say, uh, you know, I think uh, based on these studies or whatever, that such and such many fewer people would die if we had Medicare for all, I don't have to spell out and that would be good. Right. You know, because because we're all in favor of less death. Uh, but I assume so. We really <laughs> do assume so. I mean, uh, there's a Malthusian tinge to our modern politics that really is kind of dark. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably true, too. But um, but it the depends pe- on who's dying. <laughs> sure. Included, let's, let's be honest. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, yeah. And sometimes in, in, you know, like really disturbing ways from people who are not like obviously terrible people. So uh, just to uh, like something that I perceive a lot in, in the sort of American center left liberals, you know, is uh, since the 2016 election, uh, there's this real like um, – demonization of the parts of the country that are perceived as having, you know, given us Trump, uh, that like to the point that like, if there's like a natural disaster there, you know, then like some people be like, Oh, good. You know, they're coming. Right. You know, and maybe more seriously, when you talk about things like, like there are, it's really gotten to the point where there are like coastal liberals that if you like bring up like the opioid epidemic, you know, they'll, they'll, like react badly to that because like they perceive that as a problem of these people that they've decided are all, you know, um, whatever, you know, that like are, 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 are all like uh, subhuman because they're so racist, you know, that, uh, um, you know, even though of course, uh, you know, there are, um, you know, like none of these States did Trump win a hundred percent of the vote and uh, the, uh, and, and, and I would even argue that, you know, uh, having some family members who fall into this category, that there are even people who are human beings who deserve compassion, who did vote for so Trump. I saw recently a tweet, someone said that um, uh, liberals say that uh, that people at the center of the country work at the racism factory, and that uh, dirtbag leftists say people work at the racism factory, but they should unionize. <laughs> and I think that summarized what what, what this sort of mentality about centrism says thank you so much so if you'd forgive me for doing this i'm going to follow up um on on what david just said with a a quote for i mean i hate to do this but on on the other hand i don't i do i would i legitimately want to hear um what you have to say about a similar sentiment that caused some problems in the splinter episode episode (laughs) splinter uh let's call it an article that came out yesterday and in which Amber Ellie Frost said, the majority of people are not woke. Why would we dismiss the majority of people as hopelessly reactionary? And and that, among other things, but that particular quote caused a firestorm. And so um, if you could address that and also what David said, like, but yeah. specifically, like really, it, you can imagine that you were in a classroom, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, explain to people why it might be problematic to get um, really upset uh, about that line alone. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing that actually just before we started recording, I saw somebody posting about this and, um, you know, posted in the comments and then Twitter, probably one of the smugger things I've said on uh, social media, which is that if you find yourself being really outraged by something like this and you've decided that somebody who 
claims to be a leftist is really like a you know racist or a sexist or a reactionary. One thing that would be a really useful exercise is to take out a sheet of paper, like an actual physical sheet of paper, because this will slow you down, and see if you can write down five specific like policies related to race or gender, whatever you're getting upset about, on which you think this person actually disagrees with you. And if you can't do it, then like maybe reconsider your fury. Maybe reconsider the idea that they're secretly not really on your side. Thank you so much. <laughs> Professor Burgess, um, genuinely, thank you. Um, so a, a quick uh, follow-up. Could, I, could, could yeah. we talk maybe a little bit about the, the, the suspicion that's attached to the outrage fury kind of machine, right? So, so why, I mean, I don't have an answer for this, but I just love yeah. to hear your thoughts or musings about um, the kind of level of suspicion that we're seeing, like, uh, quote unquote, on the left, quote unquote, on social media, but also in reality, right? Where is that coming from? And how do we address it? And what's the role of good argumentation in that uh, addressing? So, yeah, I mean, this is really hard, uh, because I think some of it, you know, there's no way, I mean, there's no way of saying some of this without sounding like a very, like, cliched kind of um you know grumpy old man you know because like i've got like I mean, i'm <laughs> just barely old enough to have grown up without a lot of this stuff and it seems to me that i use these stupid websites too because you have to but like um it seems to me that social media makes us all a lot shallower about things like this because uh if you're communicating in like 280 character chunks Right, you know, then uh, it's much easier to just kind of, well, to not pay very much attention to the details of what somebody's saying, oftentimes because uh, the format just doesn't give them time to go into detail anyway, right? And also to, um, to sort of just respond to like the general sense you get from what somebody is saying, right? So uh, when Amber says in that interview, most people are not very woke, like, if you were actually having a conversation with her in person, you might say, hey, so, uh, so what do you mean by that, right? You know, because like that could mean a lot of different. Somebody might hear that and think that you're saying, you know, uh, most people, you know, think that black people are inferior and that's totally fine, right? You know, but you could just mean, right, on the opposite end of the spectrum, most people are not very particular about certain kinds of issues, about language and presentation. Not too much of a big deal should be made about that, right? You know, and that would be a very different kind of claim. Uh, and, uh, and, but like, instead of asking any of those follow-ups, you know, it's, it's like you just sort of, people just kind of react to, that doesn't sound good, right? That rubs me the wrong way, right? I mean, or, I mean, it could be the same thing with like, you know, um, I hear Heidi Matthews says that she's not a feminist, so uh, I guess she, I, me, I guess she must believe that like the Handmaid's Tale is a utopia, and you know that's uh, we should, you know that like we should reverse you know gender equality. Or you could say, oh, that's really interesting. What do you mean by that? Right? Like once we and then we could like have a longer conversation that's likely to be a lot more uh, productive. So quick follow up. David's jumping out of his chair because this is such a great conversation. So thanks again for joining us. Okay. But so I, I will often get so um, uh, something similar to that, right? So the response that you need to be, especially as a 
woman, professional, whatever, right? As a thing, whatever. You need to be careful, particularly careful and responsible about how you say things in public and what that means, these people will continue, is something like your words can be taken the wrong way from the bad guys, like from the real fascists or whatever. Yeah, so I just, that's just a follow-up, but I, I, you know, that that's also, you know, there's so many levels of assumption embedded in that kind of a response that themselves are not unpacked, right? So when somebody responds to a provocative statement, you know, by whomever saying you need to be more careful, uh, they're not also then taking on board the the idea that they need they have some kind of responsibility to ask what people mean right to ask yeah. for complexity in the public space etc yeah because because uh, certainly like um you know when people um you know when people actually become like right-wing anti-feminists probably the thing that's going to influence them is that they heard a one sentence quote from a uh, legal academic in Canada once saying something, you know, like that's, you know, that's probably the chain of cause and effect, you know, that, uh, that leads young men to become extremists. But uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. It doesn't deserve like, like that kind of critique. Like I don't think even really deserves to be taken uh, very seriously because it's not, uh, it's so exaggerated. It's so, um, I mean, honestly, to me, it sounds like in a really weird way, like it, it uh, recapitulates some like very like traditionalist ideas about gender, you know, that like, you know, you that like, you know, as a woman, it's very important that, you know, that you that you you uh, you speak, you know, uh, you know, that you speak delicately and don't let, you know, anything, you know. Uh, anything be taken the wrong way. So, uh, so yeah, and, and I think a lot of that's. I, I think a lot of that feels like a rationalization to me, right? Like that they that like basically you feel angry, you don't like that somebody said something. Uh, you can, you're sort of casting around for for like a reason to like attach to your dislike of it, and it can't be. Uh, and if and like you kind of realize that if you go down the road of figuring out exactly what they meant by it and then like uh, and then like thinking about the uh, you know and then like actually critiquing the underlying idea that that would be really hard so like it's so much easier to just say well it doesn't matter whether you meant it that way or not somebody could take it that way you know it's it's almost like uh, god you know it almost sounds like the sort of um you know, like back in the 90s when, you know, when people would get like upset at, um, you know, there's sort of big vogue for people getting upset at like uh, cartoons, you know, like, you know, Beavis and Butthead, you know, said something bad, you know, that like, even if in context, it's not so bad, you know, impressionable people could be listening to this, you know, they could take it the wrong way. And that, that, that just seems like a really... about Marilyn Manson. (laughs) Exactly. Our greatest American hero, Marilyn Manson. He's a, he's he's our Zizek, you know. I I really believe that. I, I don't want to get yeah. too deep in that, but uh, I think he he's always like two or three years ahead of what's going on, and uh, I, I adore him. I'll tell you what. I remember listening a few years ago to an interview with Marilyn Manson on uh, Brett Easton Ellis's podcast, uh, and uh, uh, that's a double cancellation. <laughs> 
you know, I think he says a lot of silly no, things. No, I know you're exactly the same age as me. Like, I mean, that, that like right there, like that, I could date your birthday to like within months because as a, as a, like a lefty who likes Marilyn Manson and Brett Easton Ellis, yeah. I think like that puts us in a very specific category. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, and God, actually, that's, you know, by the way, that's another example of, of Twitter making us all dumber, you know, because, um, because, uh, you know, Ellis, like in the 80s when he was writing, um, novels that were correctly perceived by a lot of people to be like really interesting, like, you know, kind of cultural critiques of the Reagan era. I'm sure he said like dumb shit, like, you know, in private conversation, the way he says dumb shit in Twitter sometimes, you know, but like nobody else had to know about them. So they would just judge him on the basis of his novels, which was so much better. But yeah. And I remember listening to this, this uh, podcast conversation. And I remember being like, there was a point where Marilyn Manson, he was talking about the history of Christianity and, you know, and he was, I was like, Oh, there was a certain point I was trying to, Oh, wow. Actually, I think that's like, that mostly checks out. He's actually done his research. And then like he had, there was a point when they were talking about drugs and it was like the most, like the most like grounded drug advice I've ever heard in my life. You know, it was like, uh, it was like uh, use drugs when you're happy, not when you're sad. Cause that way it'll be easier to quit and uh, don't do heroin. Cause it'll probably kill you. I have one more question I wanted to ask, and then I'm going to kick it to Heidi. But uh, I, I have really one of the things I, I've noticed is that I think that the size of spaces have affected argumentation. Yeah. So I think that, like, for example, we're all lefties, we're all socialists here. You know, we're all yeah. good. You know, we're all on the right side of history, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah. the size of the way, like, Patreon works, mm. and I think the market works in these spaces, have actually caused us to change the way we argue. Do you think that there's market imperatives affecting the left discourse? I do. Uh, like, one is um, that uh, you know that again, at the risk of feeding into that, like. You know, that classic image from The Simpsons of Grandpa Simpson, you know, shaking his fist and it says, old man yells at cloud. You know, that, uh, the fact that you have to, uh, if you want to market anything, and if, uh, we all do, you know, that like if that, uh, that any kind of, you know, left media, you know, it's not like it magically exists in some different economic system, you know, where you don't have to sell things, right? You know, that like all all left media involves involves selling things, you know, that uh, buy my book, join my Patreon, you know, check out this magazine. If you want to promote things, uh, you pretty much need to, uh, you know, to, to like be on Twitter, for example, and, and when you're going to be on it, to the extent that you're going to use it to like interact about politics. If you don't, you know, then you're going to defeat the purpose, you know, uh, and to the extent that you do, though, going to end up arguing and, you know, 280 character chunks. And you're also probably, even if you're like a very thoughtful person, you're also going to figure out pretty quickly for your own good that trying to have long, earnest conversations on that medium is really frustrating at best, right? You know, uh, like felt so much empathy a couple of weeks ago when, uh, when they're like, you know, at the spectacle of like a uh, hundred randos uh, telling a law professor that uh, that yeah that the uh, the legal definition of genocide can't possibly be what she says it is, <laughs> and like trying to like talk, you know, like and like I I started trying to like patiently reason with these people, and you can kind of see from that interaction why so many people, even if they are smart, thoughtful people, uh, 
quickly give up on that, right? You know, that they're not going to like, it's not worth the effort, right? You know, trying to have earnest, in-depth conversations in there, you know, you're, you're just going to like keep hitting these brick walls. It's, it's too easy for people to do these drive-by responses to you. So what you end up doing is just kind of using it for light snark, you know, like everybody else. Uh, which is fine as far as it goes. There's nothing wrong with light snark, but but there is something wrong with it when it becomes our dominant mode of communicating with each other. Uh, and I mean, look, I'm not I'm not against condemning things. There are lots of things that deserve to be condemned. I'm not against mocking things. I mean, I'm on the Michael Brooks show every week. You know, like that would be a very you know weird thing for me to do if I were against mockery. But I think that it does become a problem when mockery and moral condemnation become the primary like weapons in our arsenal and the things that we're most used to and the things that we're most comfortable with, uh, because they're you know because that's just how we're accustomed to communicating. You know, one thing that's one thing that's bad about that is that it, that means that if you never get around to actually like going into detail and doing the earnest thing and showing what's wrong with people's arguments then people who are taken in by those arguments will eventually think you don't have a good response. And another thing that's wrong with that is that when uh, legitimate differences arise on the left, as has happened approximately every 15 minutes since the French Revolution, uh, then uh, if those, if that's all we've got, right, then those are the tools that we're going to turn against each other. And, and that just, and that's just like toxic and depressing and makes, you know, good people want to like, you know, want to check out of politics and just watch Netflix. That's great. I want to ask, or, or it's not a question, but just throw some sure. words at you. Uh, <laughs> let's pretend we're in class. So, so you mentioned in the book, uh, your fallacy, happy students, which I thought was so mm-hmm. great because it reminded me of, um, of my first year students mm-hmm. who I, who I love and adore and who are wonderful, of course, but sure. But what I find and my colleagues find is exactly what you just um, alluded to. In other words, this people, before they start forcing themselves to, to parse out kind of what they think and why they think it and how that could fit into an argument structure, they're actually, in other words, in their first week of law school, <laughs> if yeah. they don't have a degree in philosophy before that, and sometimes even if they do, but... Um, so they come and they're, they're fallacy happy, in other, and what that looks like in law is they're punitive happy. Right. Yeah. So that means everything's a crime. Right. Yeah, yeah. Why is this person not in jail? Why is this not an assault? Why is this not defamation? Like criminal, def- you know, libel. Like the, the it's so it's it's um, really striking to me how so much of the work we do with first year students actually consists of, of saying, hey, just stay, take a step back and like, why, why are you so so punitive? And where is that coming from? And how and, and I wonder about how that kind of like knee jerk fallacy happiness or yeah. knee-jerk punitive nature um, is a kind of dogma that exists both on the right and on the left and also, of course, I suppose in the center, right? And how 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 we can manage that. I don't know. I keep asking you how to do things, which again, <laughs> I apologize for. It's, it's a nice, but, but just to reflect, and I think, I think that experience of having the fallacy happy student is exactly the same experience as having the, the punitive uh, yeah. student in law school. But is the same experience of people telling me to go fuck myself on Twitter as though that were an appropriate way to talk to anybody, right? (laughs) Not because I'm endorsing civility, but because I'd actually (laughs) like to have a conversation. And so those are just some words that I've thrown at you. You don't have to respond. 
<laughs> uh, well, I, I guess I would say that uh, on the civility point, I mean, this this is really hard because, like, because um, on the one hand, um, I mean, my all right. I mean, I guess just to put my cards to the table here, like, I am generally of the school of thought that, like, if you um, if you see uh, some like. Um, I, I don't even know. I'm trying to think of a good example. If you, uh, but like, you know, but like if you see like the head of ice uh, at a restaurant in Washington, DC, you should like go ahead and tell him to fuck himself. Right. You know, that's fine. Right. You know, that's, that's, that's I'm, direct I'm, action. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I, I really have no problem with that. That, that feels morally appropriate to me. But then, like, it's tricky. Hard to agree, just to be clear, but, but continue. <laughs> sure, sure. sure. Uh, but if you have... But then the, then the tricky thing about this is that I, I see a lot of people on the left kind of... Okay, so reacting to, like, centrists who scold them about doing that with this kind of, like, flyer freak flag high anti-civility stuff. And that... I worry about because I think that that's um, I, I I think that like it's for one thing I think that's just like not very strategic you know that like just sort of like making a virtue of being an asshole for its own sake you know which is what a lot of that stuff seems to get down to uh, and and it, it's because it seems like a lot of times it would be um, you know it would be much more <laughs> like it would be much more helpful and much more constructive and certainly if you're interested in like actually like thinking, you know, like, I mean, you know, in the context of, uh, you know, cause like, I, I guess it seems like there are contexts in which sort of reasoning about something isn't the primary goal of an interaction or shouldn't be right. You know, that that's that like not everything, you know, not everything is about that. Right. That, uh, but uh, there are also contexts in which it should be. And if it shouldn't be, I don't really know what you're doing there, right? You know, that like if you if you see people if you see people like having an argument uh that where like you're pretty sure that everybody involved shares a lot of at least your sort of coarse grain political goals and like you have a um and and they're they're sort of trying to have a conversation about how to get there, then it seems like uh if you have this kind of like um this like norm for like anti-civility, then like that's just going to lead, that's just going to lead to you like toxifying that space. And I don't really see the purpose that it serves. I wanted to ask a question. Um, We had a very interesting week this week because uh, we came to our attention through a friend of ours that, uh, that Mein Kampf was being sold at Walmart for $14 and 88 cents. And, uh, it's a, a really odd story because I ended up being quoted in about not about ten to fifteen ten to fifteen different journal or different articles, uh, and it was the reason it was interesting was because uh, particularly when I reported it back to my Facebook friends, yeah. you know, my my Twitter friends tend to be like you know uh, left of Chairman Mao, uh, my Facebook friends tend to be a be- better representation of like the society, right? Yeah. As we live in it. Notably upper middle class, but, you know, professionals of every political leading. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friends who are more libertarian or conservative were saying, well, are you calling for censorship? You know? And I was like, yeah. actually, that's not what I, what I was addressing. What I was interested in is like, do you have an opinion on the idea of censorship? 
uh-huh. and argumentation and is when is an environment where there is censorship less effective to argue in? Yeah, I think it kind of depends on the kind of censorship that we're talking about. Like, so, so I, I guess I make a couple of distinctions, right? So I do. Can, can I just clarify before you go yeah. ahead? Sorry to do this. So David, did you mean something like censorship cancellation is a form of censorship or something, something else? I'm just a little bit confused. I, so I'm talking about not publishing things like Mein Kampf. So I actually, actually think cancellation does fall into this category. I think you're making a good point. A lot of uh, my right-wing friends who I, I don't think would read Mein Kampf uh, or not really into it in, the, in a non-academic sense were, were saying, well, why don't we cancel Stalin? Or why don't we cancel, uh, you know, those Stalin sort of, uh, you know, why can't we, why can we still have the Communist Manifesto? Oh, okay. If, uh, you know, that led to whatever, you know, ridiculous sort of right-wing talking point about socialist death camps that exist and really just like distinguishing like how does censorship fall into cancellation and and it in that world can we have proper arguments uh so i guess i disentangle a couple things here uh so one is um whereas i i am uh pretty um, you know, pretty hardcore civil liberties, liberties guy. I mean, I've, you know, long before I joined the DSA, I joined the ACLU, you know, that's, uh, you know, like I, I and, um, and I do have concerns even about the kind of um, uh, uh, private, private censorship that like, you know, there's always a pedant on hand to say that that's not censorship, you know, cause it's not the government and yes and no. Right. You know, that's the, we could, get into that right but like uh in uh but i'm also a little leery of tying it too closely to the to like reasoning and and the sort of uh the sort of traditional like john stuart mill kind of open marketplace of ideas argument against censorship uh because i'm not uh super sold on that argument i think that it's uh, i think that like Bill is somebody who had some really good impulses about civil liberties and he had uh, this utilitarian moral philosophy and he was kind of, he was trying to justify the former in terms of the latter, but I'm, I'm not totally convinced, you know, that, that it all fits together. I think that like, I would certainly rather live in a society where, uh, where you couldn't, uh, you couldn't be legally penalized for uh, the content of your, speech even if it was like really bad objectionable speech but i'm also not convinced that like well i mean like think about thinking about like the difference between canadian speech laws and american speech laws uh that um you know i i i have a strong preference uh for uh for the american you know first amendment model but when i start to think about how to argue for that um i don't really think that like um I, I really don't think that the kinds of things that are typically excluded by hate speech laws that like uh, excluding them is really going to like that we're in like great danger or that like, you know, we won't like the right ideas won't emerge, you know, cause you can't like, uh, you know, cause you can't hoist up a swastika flag or whatever, you know, that, that seems a little silly. Uh, so, um, so I, I think that like, if we're going to uh, if we're going to argue for um, for a more uh, you know for a more permissive you know speech regime, it's got to be on some more fundamental grounds than that. It, it can't just be because like 
you know, we're worried that, you know, like, you know, Galileo was censored and, you know, the next Galileo might be censored too if we don't have totally free speech because you can clearly have some speech limitations without really triggering that concern to any great extent. So that that's just kind of a philosophical quibble. As, as far as I think what you're asking about, uh, I also do think that like whatever our reasons are for wanting um, – a, a wide range of opinion to be like expressible. I think like trying to nail down how much of that is really utilitarian, how much of it is based on other things is, is a harder question, right? But like whatever our reasons are for wanting there to be like a fairly uninhibited exchange of, of opinion, I think those reasons don't just apply when it's the state that's limited in. So um, I think that and this is something I worry about because I see a lot of liberals and even leftists uh, kind of opportunistically adopting this like kind of really narrow uh, legalistic kind of uh, libertarian idea about free speech that you know that like it's only really that as long as as long as the government's not doing it there's there's nothing to see here right and. I think that's pretty dangerous because realistically, you know, we live in a capitalist society. Uh, and in fact, we live in a society where there are like three companies that have, you know, massive control over the flow of information. Uh, and so to the extent that we have reasons to want there to be some like really open rules about speech, I think at least some of those do transfer from the government to like media platforms the last thing I'd say about this, I know this has already been very long-winded, is is just that the uh, is is that as far as as far as your original question about the um, about the relationship between speech and arguments, I think it really does depend on the kind of speech uh, speech requirements that you're talking about, right? Like whether or not you think it was a good idea for Carlos Maza to uh, to make the complaint that he did to YouTube, or that like whatever you think about the effects of that, like, and obviously I wish YouTube had much clearer and more transparent uh, rules about what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. And I don't know exactly what like good rules would look like, but I do think that like, if there was some set of rules that meant that you couldn't like make videos where you referred to a journalist you didn't like as a lispy queer, you know, then like that's probably okay. Right? You know, like that's not going to inhibit the free exchange of ideas too much. So, um, so we're over an hour and I want to be sensitive to your, uh, Saturday, but we did send you, um, this was at, at David's behest, um, uh, a, a series of, of tweets by Noah Smith that have to do with, um, I said, well, he, so he can, he conducted a, a Twitter glossary. We'll put this in the show notes so people know what we're talking about, but I, we, we were, um, Thank you. Entertained by it today. And so I'll just hand it over to, to David to say something about this. It's going to be the last question. And and thanks in advance. Well, thank you again afterwards, but thanks in advance for what's been a, a fantastic conversation. So ben, we, we discovered this great uh, sort of uh, tweet glossary that I, I thought was both true and untrue which yeah. is a lot of what Twitter is. Sure. And uh, it was essentially a, a discussion of different words that are used that are sort of keywords. And I think they're actually 
typically leftwards. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, Noah Smith, I, I believe, is a, a center-right type guy, in my my sort of opinion. Um, he's you know writes for Bloomberg. Uh, I think he used to write for the New Republic. Some people say he's a centrist. Some people say he's center-right. I, you know that 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 distinction has been really blurred in the last few years. I think. But his Twitter glossary uh, defines certain terms that people use, and I, I've seen both directed at me and, and at Heidi and, and even you uh, <laughs> over, the, over the different things where when you d- take a, an idea that's a little more complicated or complex, you'll often get these responses. And his basically every definition was disagrees with me. Bad faith disagrees with me. Disingenuous disagrees with me. Dishonest disagrees with me. Bad take disagrees with me. Galaxy brain disagrees with me. You're better than this. I disagree. Do better. I disagree. Fuck you. I disagree. Delete your account. I disagree. <laughs> this ain't it, chief, which is one of my favorites. I disagree. <laughs> Hack. Person I disagree with. Rhino pooping gif. I disagree. Uh, idiot. A person I disagree with. Dumb fuck. Person I disagree with. I'm going to add stress right. Person I disagree with. <laughs> so what do you think about yeah. sort of the um, coding of language in this argumentation style? And it's like, I see people we like. I've done this, you know. Sure, sure. Is this true, or sort is of, yeah. another way to shut down how we? I mean, I mean it's 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 true to a point. And yeah, that last one, uh, your your addendum is is particularly amazing. Um, you know, like I, I really I really want to like I really want to kill whoever you know taught the left word Strasserite. You know, like whoever did the Wikipedia deep dive and discovered that word. You know that like. Because I can never tell how much people really mean this, right? Like, like if you really, like, if you really lost the plot to the point where you think that, like, the like somewhat contrary lefties that like you have beefs with on Twitter are actually Nazis, you know that, like, that you know, because I don't have the time. Because, <laughs> like, I remember. Uh, well, actually, so uh, you mentioned the um, that uh, Splinter uh, interview. Uh, earlier in the podcast, and I remember uh, oh, whenever this was, a few months ago, right after the Zizek Peterson debate, uh, I was listening to the podcast uh, Red Scare, and uh, and Amber was on that to like take apart the the debate with the Zizek Peterson debate with them, um, and uh, and I remember thinking, oh wow, this is uh, like at a certain point in the episode, I remember having thinking this is kind of funny because. This is the uh, the Red Scare Girls plus Amber Frost. So, like for people who throw around this term Strasserite, right? This is like the this is like the Strasserite Central Committee meeting, right? You know, that's and uh, over the course of the episode, I will I will tell you who we met after the the Peterson debate because <laughs> okay. I think that will further further uh, give way to people's uh, <laughs> anxieties or uh, suspicions. But like I, I remember thinking, like as I was listening to this, oh hey, this is like the Strasserite Central Committee meeting. But like they, there was a point in the, the episode where they started talking about the death penalty, and they all talked about like how horrifying they found the death penalty and how much against it they all were. They talked about Peterson's thing with trans students, and they all agreed that as a matter of basic respect, of course, you'd have to call people by the pronouns you want to be called by. I was thinking. Nazis are not what they used to be. If you know, like if these if, if these people are Nazis, then I've lost track of what we're talking about, <laughs> right? Um, like it's you know, and even people who like I do uh, who do take positions that I find more frustrating, you know, than than those people, um, you know, like um, 
you know, Michael Tracy, for example, you know, has, has, has said some, you know, some things that, that I actually do find much more aggravated, you know, uh, having to do with immigration and other things like that. But like, I mean, it really just speaks to how little you have to get out into the world, right. To believe this, like, you know, like if you, um, you guys live in a, in a slightly more enlightened country, but like they have a, uh, you know, uh, although, you know, although I, I do, uh, you know, although you, it's also the country that gave us Jordan Peterson and the Ford brothers, so let's not exaggerate. You know, Peter uh, Peterson's like down the street, literally. So <laughs> don't get too excited. About you know, I live in a country where um, almost half of the population voted for Donald Trump, and where like centrist Democratic positions on a lot of these issues are like well to the right of the people who are being referred to as Strasserites. You know, so it seems like if the, if you think these people are Nazis, I can't even imagine what word you'd have to use for like most of your fellow citizens. You know, but uh, um, like, have you met your cousins? Yeah, 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 yeah. We just call those people not woke. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. Oh, that's, so yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of those things. Uh, like, I, I think Noah, uh, who, by the way, does strike me as a you know i I think i'd say more center left than center right but whatever it doesn't matter you know that much you know but um but you know but i i think that his his tweet you know is uh is is kind of right like i think that like fuck you probably does communicate some things that uh that that i disagree with you does not right you know but like the problem is um what it takes to to escalate to that right like so uh in like the obvious, uh, like in some ways, the most interesting one was right at the beginning of the list, uh, where they, he had the examples about bad faith and disingenuous. Um, because I do think that those are terms that like have legitimate applications, where they're not just ways of saying I disagree with you, that like sometimes people really do disingenuously say things in bad faith, that like, you know, when the person, you know, when, uh, you know, somebody is like an anarcho-capitalist and they want to abolish the minimum wage and, you know, um, and, and re-legalize child labor and coal mines, you know, then, and they say, but really, like, I share all of your goals, you know, like, I want to combat poverty. This I just have, like, a different idea about how the free market will take care of it. I mean, being, you know, there's interpretive charity and there's just being willfully dumb, right? You know, that there's, there's like, you know, that you can kind of, say at a certain point, yeah, I don't really think that you're, I really, I don't really think that what makes you tick is what makes me tick politically. I don't think that we really have the same goals here. I think that this is a, this is a weird rationalization. Uh, but like if somebody who's a self-described socialist and you can't do that test we talked about earlier where you write down five policies that you disagree on, policies that, you know, you would advocate that they wouldn't or vice versa, uh, then, then it seems like it might be reasonable to assume that if they disagree with you, they're not really like being a disingenuous reactionary who won't come out and say what they think. That like they, you know, they really do just disagree with you. So, but what? So I'm I'm just staring at this again, because I want to. I'm I'm curious as to what you think he's doing with this or I mean maybe he's just having fun right like I suppose tweets are fun too or whatever but what's his move because I I tell people they're in bad faith all the time and I really believe 
often they are <laughs> sure, sure, sure. as an example, but what do you think he's trying to, to do? Is he's try is this helpful? Is this just, is it just a joke and should we leave it there? Or can this actually like advance uh, the discourse? I hate to be ridiculous, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm reluctant to break down the extent to which it's a joke and the extent to which it's not a joke for one thing, because that's the least funny thing you can do to a joke, but uh, it's um, you know, I'm sure that he's having some fun with it. I also think that like, he might be genuinely expressing something he thinks to a certain point, in which case he's probably painting with too broad a brush because like very often people really do think that things are disingenuous and maybe they're right and maybe they're wrong, but like just telling them, Oh, all you're saying is that you disagree with me probably isn't going to be very helpful. Awesome. So we'll let you get back to your Saturday. Um, But before you do that, I will plug your book. People should spend the money on it. <laughs> it's called Give Them an Argument Logic for the Left by Ben Burgess with uh, zero books. And Ben, tell the good people what your Twitter is and anything else that you want to tell them. So yeah, uh, it's approximately the cost of Mein Kampf at Walmart. Uh, but uh, but Mein Kampf, uh, I'll tell you, like um, it's full of really bad writing, mixed metaphors, and you know, and and you're just not getting a good value if you do Mein Kampf. You should really get this instead. Um, but uh, but yeah, Twitter is twitter.com/slash Ben Burgess. That's B-U-R-G-I-S. And uh, there's also a Patreon, which is also patreon.com/slash Ben Burgess, uh, where you can get. Um, well, it's been very slow lately because we're preparing to move across the country uh and things have been busy but like in theory you get a couple of um uh essays a week and one of those usually is uh, about a patron suggested topic uh see me uh again been terrible at keeping to the schedule lately uh but most of the time on mondays on the zero books youtube channel and much more consistently uh, on uh, Tuesday nights on the Michael Brooks show. Uh, so, wow, you're doing actual essays for people. It sounds like uh, an uh, amazing amount of emotional, but also rational <laughs> labors. <laughs> so congrats on that. And thanks so much again uh, for being here. It was just a joy to have you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs>